Hey Elizabeth, I don't even know what to say about Meet for Tcast. I'm a fan of you guys and I want you to keep going forever. Your conversations are fun but serious at the same time. It's so informative to be listening to you guys. It's so chilled out that it makes me want to relax and just listen. I could go on and on about you guys. You guys are the best and not just you know in the whole music thing it's just like how you have your conversations and how you build up these questions and how many turns it takes from there oh, i just love it so just please never stop recording because i don't know what i do without you guys that's the record button have we started we have started So, this is the Meet for Tea cast. You might always start like that. Who knows? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meet for Tea cast. Season 4, episode 30? 32. 32? 32, yeah. Ever since we celebrated the 100th episode, my brain recalibrated. Yeah, I think this is our 108th episode all told including all the bonus things and all that fun stuff. Whoa. Yeah. I'm Mark Allen Miller by the way. I'm Elizabeth McDuffie. We're your hosts of the Meet for Tea cast. Welcome, first-time listeners. Welcome back, regular listeners. Yeah. And <laughs> um, with 108 episodes, you would think, you would think I would have at least one new review to read this time. We don't. Wouldn't you think? Have you would think. Any new reviews? I'm crestfallen. Hmm, I'm sad. Don't make us sad. You made me sad. It's so easy. It's the easiest thing in the world and you can do it in almost one fell swoop. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review with writing, copy and paste that. Go into Good Pods, leave your five-star review and just paste in what you wrote. No need to reinvent the wheel that way. And you can even in Good Pods after you listen to an episode, you can share the episode you listen to on your social media. Yep. There's a handy dandy link for doing just that. I just listened to from pretty much every podcatcher you can do that. Well, it's really good pods mix it particular like you're prompted to. Oh yeah, at the end of the episode they always pop up that thing. Yeah. Show, you know, show this podcaster some love or something like that. Yeah. I like that. I usually click on the, you know, the five good star. Good pods thing. is exceptional in that way. Yeah. They're exceptional in a lot of ways. So tonight season 4 episode 32 I was joined by the charming and very talented Jerome Berglund and it's my honor to be the first literary journal to publish him yeah some years ago I think it was back in the passion fruit issue I can look it up if I'm wrong I think we'll it was put the correction in the show now might have been mentioned in the in the podcast yeah You guys can correct me if I'm wrong in the in the podcast. <laughs> we we have a lovely far-ranging conversation. We go all over the place really. You yeah. have to listen. It's it's yeah. I think entertaining. I was entertained. I had a good time. I like to think that people like to listen to people having a good time. Yeah. He had a good time. Pretty sure you'll have a good time. Yeah, I just basically finished editing editing the content and uh He'll read say, some stuff too. Yep. Yeah, he, yeah, he reads he reads one of his pieces and 
but it's a high energy conversation that really does go all over the map. It's it's fascinating, and there's a lot of really interesting information imparted, and uh, yeah, cultural and political topics as per the usual. It's a you know, it's a wild ride. Yeah, he is. For those of you that are paying attention, the author of our most recent publication book. His collection of short form poems, Senru, largely funny pages. Yeah. Which you can buy. You can. By going to meetfortea.com and click on the old Meet for Tea books, press books Actually, uh, page. Surely we're low. That's okay. We'll get more. We'll get more. What's a few ways that uh, people can support us? You took the words right out of my mouth. I'm just going to go there. It's housekeeping corner. <laughs> so all the very best ways to support us can be found on our website at meatfortea.com. That's M-E-A-T-F-O-R-T-E-A dot com. There you will find, well, the aforementioned book by Jerome Berglund, as well as several other of our book offerings. There are many. We've been amassing lots of new titles. You'll find ways to purchase individual issues of Meat for Tea, whether in PDF or physical print form, or to subscribe to Meat for Tea so you get it arriving in your mailbox four times a year, which is a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. I hear Meat for Tea is on the coolest coffee tables throughout the land. I think that's actually in Cool Coffee Tables uh, Limited, which is a really cool publication. If you haven't seen that publication, you should check it out. Oh, never mind. He made that up. Yeah, I did. If you are feeling especially generous, and I hope you are, because these are tight times for everybody. I'm using a geriatric laptop, which is not going along well with a whole lot of websites anymore. So that's going to become a concern. You can donate. If you make a donation of upwards of $100, you would make that via a check to Gateway City Live, who is our dun-dun-dun fiscal sponsor, and that would make your donation tax deductible. Mm-hmm. It's a nice thing. It's a nice thing for us. It's a nice thing for the lovely people at Gateway City Arts. It's just a cool thing to do in general. We also have our spring store where there are a number of lovely things, especially summer essentials like beach towels and totes. We have slides, right? Um, no, not yet. We're going to get slides. Yeah. We're working on getting a bathing suit, which I quite badly want. Actually, I want a me-teeny bathing suit. <laughs> we also have a Patreon page. We do. Be a Patreon subscriber. We are adding more cool stuff to our Patreon regularly and you get the experience if you live far from these parts in some of the episodes of what it's like to be a Cirque at one of our release parties. And that's fun. Including live recordings of the bands as well as the readers. So Bands are recorded live on premises. It is cool. And I'll be adding those every time I have time to do a new mix of one of them. I'm putting it right up there on Patreon. We are going to be adding merchandise to our spring store and we're going to be running a summer sale. So keep your eye out for that. And also, this is yet to be confirmed, but our next podcast 
guest is probably going to be Jeffrey Feingold. And after that episode, we'll be taking a season break for a couple, two to four weeks. Yeah. Because we haven't done that in a long time. Yeah, in about a year, actually. And what a year it's been. 32 episodes, including the bonus episodes, of course. But that's a lot of episodes. We're bringing it. Yeah. Neat for deep, bringing it. So that covers housekeeping. We should probably tuck into your conversation, shouldn't we? We should. Yeah. Well, I guess then, yeah, the um, lack of further ado. Here's Elizabeth and Jerome Berglund. Hello, Jerome. Elizabeth, hello. Hi. Good evening. How lovely to have you here. Thanks for giving us a little... um leeway on our start time oh not at all so happy to be here love meat for tea and your podcast is my favorite so it's such an honor to be on here i'm honored because you've been on some pretty stellar podcasts let me uh formally introduce you it is my pleasure to invite jerome berglund to the meat for tea cast jerome is a graduate of the university of southern california's cinema television production program. Jerome Berglund spent a picturesque decade in the entertainment industry before returning to the Midwest where he was born and raised. They nabbed him at Occupy Los Angeles. He eluded capture at Standing Rock. His recent and forthcoming writing publications include short stories in Grimm and Gilded, Stardust and the Watershed Review, a play in Iris Literary Journal, and poetry in Asahi Shimbun, Failed Haiku, and Scarlet Dragonfly. He's also an established award-winning fine art photographer whose black and white pictures have been exhibited in New York, Minneapolis, and Santa Monica galleries. Those are some credentials, Jerome. Pretty it, impressive. It sounds a lot better than it is, but thank you. <laughs> it's super impressive. And as recent, as far as recently, you've had artwork published in Meat for Tea, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super cool. And I've been looking, am I correct? And um, it looks like the very first issue of Meat for Tea that you were published in was the passion fruit issue. Yeah, yeah. I was just, uh, I was pulling that up. Unfortunately, it's a little bit too long to read. It's kind of a... You know, you were one of the first people that ever published me when I was just had no idea what I was doing. I was just blundering around, sending crazy stuff everywhere. And I can't thank you enough. I mean, those early publications are kind of what, you know, these grasping, desperate artists just need to kind of get that confidence that they're doing something right and just keep keep fighting. Well, I, I'm glad it worked out that way. And, you know, honestly, I don't I don't like do favors. I just publish what I legitimately like yeah i was i was just a you know a random what's the word slush pile you know like most of these things like it's it's so wonderful that there are people out there like you that are that are sort of uh advocating for and supporting sort of emerging voices because you know so many people so many of the bigger you know fancy dancy kind of places are looking for you know people that have a phd and are you know somebody sort of famous and when you're a little guy you know it's just critical to have places that really are publishing from the slush pile. Yeah. You know, in, in the past few years, it seems like Meat for Tea hasn't even really had a slush pile. Everything that's come in 
almost everything. There's, there's a few things that I've just had to decline. But lately, I've been just overrun with really, really great stuff. I mean, you have such a strong sort of a family of just people in the, you know, like I've heard Lauren Charag kind of just say the meat for tea family. And it really is a thing. I mean, I've met so many extraordinary, you know, writers and poets and artists through your magazine. And I've kind of just, you know, followed them and become friends with them. And I mean, it really, you're really just almost like a, you know, Gertrude Stein sort of creating this almost sort of circle of talent. I mean, it's extraordinary what you've accomplished here. Thank you so much. Wow. Although I might, my, my personal writing might lack the opacity of Gertrude Stein's. I want to read some. You got to, have you been publishing anything recently? I've been, you, you've well, been working on some short form stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And actually um, my friend, Paul Richmond, who runs Human Error Publishing. Ooh, cool. With with whom you you want to become acquainted, they're 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 really cool. Human um, error publishing. He's all set. Yeah, human error publishing. I I can send you an e- an email. Oh, thank you. Address, but you can probably find it easily with that name too. Yeah, for sure. But he's all set to do a book of my stuff. So now I've just oh, got to really? go oh, through. How exciting! Well, tell me yeah. about that. A bit. Yeah, I want to hear about it. Well. Well, I mean, the offer's been out there for over a year. I, I'm usually so busy publishing other people. Yeah. And lifting up other people's voices that, and I, I do visual art too. And the same thing with that, pub- looking for other people's artwork, that um, making time for my own, even making time for going through my body of existing work and picking out what I might want to compile together into a book and what I might want to revise further. It always goes on the back burner behind the quarterly journal, the podcast and the press, because um, oddly those three things keep us really busy. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of a paradox (laughs) that there's sort of that, I mean, you hear that a lot with people that are sort of such amazing, sort of greatest showman that it's like, definitely, you know, you try everything in your power, even if you got to slow stuff down to build in time for your stuff. Cause you know, have you shared your, your art on the social media? I don't know if I've seen any. Um, I, I was sharing collage pieces a while ago. You can probably find older ones. I think, yeah, I think feed. I recall. I'll, I'll look that up again. Thank you. Yeah. I need to be more regular with it. And I, I, I shared a poem a while ago on Facebook. I actually submitted that one to a local literary journal called Silkworm. We'll see ooh, what ooh, happens. Heck yeah. I'm, t- I'm terrible about submitting. Maybe that's why I started my own press. <laughs> Just, yeah, no. I mean, submitting is such a pain in the ass. Like it really, the if anybody's listening and they're kind of getting into it, I mean, it's one of those things where, the best, the best advice I have is just to find people that believe in your work, you know, find, find those warm, you know, find those people that are showcasing emerging voices or that, that like what you're doing. And it's so much better to be sending stuff to sort of warm readers than just kind of being one in a thousand in a giant pile that maybe they aren't even reading. You know, it's, I mean, there's so many scam operations on Submittable. It definitely pays to be careful. I actually had to stop using Submittable 
Actually, Submittable's ears are probably burning because I've I've already <laughs> said kind said of, a few. They're kind of just, horrible. I mean, feel free. Let's attack Submittable. We can <laughs> this if, if we get too too deep in the woods, but uh, I mean, they're pretty horrible in a lot of ways. Uh, well, you know, when when I started out using them, oh my God, was it twelve years ago? Or more, they, they were actually a really great submission manager, and the free part of their platform was excellent, and you got help when you needed it. And I think they just succumbed to corporate greed. Watch, watch me get sued down. <laughs> I know. I, well, they can, I mean, the good thing about having no money, I mean, I dare you, I'm a lemon. Like, come for me. Like, let me do all the, <laughs> let me do the bashing because, you know, I'm, I'm judgment proof. I got nothing. <laughs> uh, you're a lemon. I'm a rock. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they can squeeze us all they want. Good, good luck. Yeah, right. money. Me. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to end up with a lot. But um, just was it when did I switch over to do a SUMA going on three years ago? Because, and the writing was on the wall for about maybe a year prior to switching over where the submittable platform just wasn't working. The Were way they acquired by someone? To- was, there like, was there like a corporate takeover where, because suddenly things just got like, they ramped the prices and they got really abusive. And I mean, a lot of people were just disappointed. Yeah, I think they just um, shifted their focus. I think the same people are in charge. I think they just decided that being focused on being a submission platform for nonprofits to use for fundraising purposes and for other corporations to use for tracking fundraising brought the money in more efficiently than broke literary journal editors using them to manage submissions. I mean, they're great for sort of, you know, like almost like a college press that has sort of a budget and like is willing to, you know, but like for anything independent, like nobody could afford that. I mean, it's, it's sort of madness Uh -uh. to to ask a nonprofit press to, you know, pay those, those prices. Yeah. Thank, thank goodness for Dua Suma. So, well, how have you liked that from the, from your publishing and what would have been the sort of the advantages of Duo Sumo compared to compared to Submittable? Well, it's very similar to Submittable in a lot of ways, and and, and most writers are familiar with Duo Trope, and you know a lot have Duo Trope accounts. I mean, it's free. Oh, it's a part of Duo Trope. It, it comes from Duo Trope. Yeah, Duo Trope's the mother company, and and um, Duo Sumo is just. Oh. A, I guess Duotrope would be the tree, and Duosuma would be one of the branches. A big it's wonderful branch. synergy because you know Duo Duotrope kind of polices the problematic journals and sort of you know warns people when there when there are people that are being abusive or scamming or so. I mean, it's really nice to have them sort of as the overseer of that, just from a from a submitting standpoint too, just for safety for everyone. Yeah, I've got to say, I'm really grateful. To um, Nicole Four, she's one of the people running New Pages. Are you familiar with New Pages? They're good to it know about. Familiar. You should let them know about your book. You should send them a copy for review. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, another thing for me to email you, but um, I was all in a panic because I was trying to open up a new call for submission going on three years ago, and it just wasn't happening with Submittable. It was a mess. And all of the 
brick and mortar stuff I kind of had built into my submittable site, all of it had just disappeared. Oh no. It was just gone. It was the freakiest thing. So I sent Nicole a panicky email. I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I to do? I can't not have a submission manager because Meet for Tea has grown to the point where just in the early days, we just, people submitted things via email and that was fine, but I, I could never stay on top of it now. And she's like, a lot of people are liking Duosuma. I'm like, oh, thank you very much. And they've been good. They actually just gave me, a, what is it, like a gold star award for being responsible with reading and responding to submissions. And I get a discount. Oh, that's a wonderful incentive program. Yeah. Isn't that smart? It's, They've got it's clever it's like stuff. so much of a profit motive. It's like, the, what what frustrates me about Submittable too is that the the platform itself they don't really have any sort of a they just sort of allow really abusive journals to kind of rip people off and their policy is like you know people need to investigate the journals themselves and it's sort of the submitter's responsibility to determine whether a, a journal is a scam or not before submitting and it's like you could how could you know you know that's just sort of like you you buy some you know, cereal and there's like razor blades in there. Like you'd remove the person selling razor blade cereal in the grocery store. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, they've, they've got a very, very different focus now. I mean, I still use them once in a while, but most of the, most of the stuff I submit to is, you know, through Duosuma or, you know, some just through email submissions. And it's like, you have a better acceptance rate anyway. So why would you, why would you pay to have a, higher rejection rate for these places that might not even be reading your work. I mean, it, you know, I don't know why anybody still uses that platform. Yeah. The, the, the people are going to, we're, we're going to have to name oh, this. Yeah, um, we have to cut all this. Sorry, <laughs> no, no, I think we'll leave yeah. it. This is going to be in which, in which, wildly. <laughs> but it's not slander if it's true, right? No, no, exactly. No, that's totally correct. I mean, as a, as a paralegal. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is, <laughs> I, I I think meat for tea listeners will appreciate this. This is this is a truth is a defense to slander and libel. But if you're the poor person, they'll still throw the book at you. I mean, there's no no justice for the the poorer party in the legal system. Unfortunately, it's very sad. That's true. I did some homework before recording this, and I listened to a few podcasts on which you were a guest. One of which was Poetry P, which I love. Oh, they're the so best. Much. I'm just reading there. I was listening to their, they just released an issue about two days ago and I was just reading it waiting for you and oh, they're the best. I mean, I can't recommend them highly enough. Yeah, I need to get my hands on that. Do they do a physical print? It's just a, it's just an e-thing. They, they only release, you know, one or uh, a handful of episodes of the sort of collected stuff every year and it's, it's just through the, you know, kind of in a PDF format, but it's beautiful. I mean, it's just such nice stuff and there's a lot of stuff in there that you won't find anywhere else. So, I mean, it's worth... And, you know, I mean, the amount of people that are sort of working on that, I mean, it's, I think they charge like right now it's like 10 bucks or some 10 euros for a copy. And it's like, just to contribute to all the good they're doing for the community. Like I'm thrilled to, thrilled to throw some couple bucks their way. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to get my hands on that for sure. I feel like I'm one of the last holdouts for um, producing a physical print publication these days that our, our, our numbers are alarmingly few I'm so, I'm so glad you do i mean it's so it's so nice to just hold a physical copy yeah it's not hard either i mean like i'm not like a whiz at 
you know, production, but it's like, you know, by hook or by crook, I kind of taught myself how to use the KDP, the Amazon Kindle direct publishing. And it's really, you know, a young child could figure it out. I mean, there's a, there's a few steps at the beginning, sort of figuring out the, the sizing. So it'll, so the PDF will upload right, but you really just need, you know, they have a thing where you can generate covers. I mean, anybody could make a print copy in like, you know, a half day of work. Like it's nothing that couldn't be done. It's just people don't really want to, don't have the time to learn those skills, but they're simple. I mean, I could, I could teach somebody in like an hour. We don't use KDP for the magazine. We, we do. You guys do professional stuff. Yeah. We do for our books. That's why it's so beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm married to my graphic designer. Oh Yeah. That helps. <laughs> That's, you got you to leg up on that one. <laughs> well, he, he's by profession a sound engineer, but he's been doing graphic design. He was asked to do album covers. Oh, God, how long has he, has he been doing CD and album covers? 20, 25 years. I'm, I might be lowballing it. That's amazing. It. I mean, you do such a good job with the production. Like, I mean, compared to... You know, this stuff like that we whip out in Kindle, it's it's nothing compared to the beautiful quality you guys have in Meat for Tea. I mean, that really sets you apart from anything else out there that I've encountered. Aw, I'm, I'm so flattered. I also enjoyed listening to you on the Viewless Wings podcast. Oh, yeah, that takes me back. Yeah, that was a really fun one. That that James Moorhead, he's the, he's the um, poet laureate of of where he comes from. And he's just such an interesting dude. I mean, he has some really wild collections of his own work out there too. Yeah. Highly recommend people check that out and submit to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I just did a search. I'm like, okay, I'm going to come into this well studied. I'm going to, so I just searched Spotify for Jerome Berglund and lo and behold, there were those. And I'd never heard of viewless wings. Of course, I've heard of poetry P I think largely through you. I think you were the first one. Oh, they're the yeah. The, I'm always singing their praises. Yeah, Viewless Wings is extraordinary. Another uh, another really neat one, um, which I think we were talking about a while back, was a culinary Saijiki by Alison oh, Whipple. That's the other one I listened to. It's so good that oh, you are I mean, she's on. Just, she's amazing. Yeah, I I think it, I think it's wonderful. I, if she if she ever wants um, someone to even out the sound quality a little bit. Um, she could email my husband. He'd probably. Yeah, you guys do such a professional job. It's a, you know, this stuff, it's all kind of on a sliding scale. But I mean, you know, it never hurts to, it's one of those things where like you guys were like, you know, I wish we had, uh, you know, some headphones, like a, you know, standing mic. And it's like, I should have those. <laughs> Normally, <laughs> if I wasn't just like disturbingly broke right now, I would probably have access to those, but all that stuff. But yeah, her her podcast, I mean, and she's just a It's really smart. She's um she's the she's the one who edits the Haiku Society of America's monthly newsletters and she also is currently wow. editing their anthology collection. So I mean she's just all over the place. I mean she's just killing it. And she also started a a journal called Haiku Summer Girl that's just going this summer. It's like a temporary thing, but if anyone's I'm not sure how quick we're dropping this, but uh, if anybody's still able to submit to that, they're it's just extraordinary. Do you know what the deadline is? Is it I, uh, it, August I think it's 15th? running kind of through the, does that sound right? Yeah, that could be, I mean, through the summer or so, but I think it's kind of a short-lived kind of temporary thing, but it's really cool what they've been sharing. Maybe I'll send her the Mixing Ball one and oh, the Andalusian yeah. Dog one. Heck yeah. Those got some good responses. Have you been, have you been sending anything to the uh, Five Fleas? 
that uh, Roberta Jacobson edits. They they really share some kind of fun, cool, wild, experimental short poems, and they're they're really open to kind of you know all different formats. No, I have not. I, again, like I said, I'm terrible about submitting. Oh, for sure. Well, also, I'm just unwilling to live in squalor. So, regardless of how much work meet for tea or the press or the podcast demand, I have to spend an hour a day on the house because I just, I don't do well in cluttery, messy environments. Oh yeah. They say a clean house is a clean room. I did yeah. when I was a little punk rock girl. Hell yeah. Oh my God. You, you can't, you can't believe the messes I was comfortable living in when I was, oh God, 18, 19, 20, 21. Just no problem at all. And as a little punk rock girl, it's kind of like a stylish mess, you know, like a punk rock mess is almost like a part of the the decor. (laughs) Well, I I don't know how stylish it necessarily was. It was really pretty messy. (laughs) I just didn't give AF then. And I think I'd also just get overwhelmed and blow it off and, There'd, there'd be, you know, something happening in North Park, oh, yeah. like Battalion of Saints <laughs> opening for GBH. And, you know, I'd get ready to go out and mosh. Yeah, this is, these are my roots. Uh, you're, oh, you're, I love, I love moshing. I think I've got some moshing poems in some of these collections. Uh, nice. I miss the COVID kind of ruined all the, all the, I think people are finally kind of getting back out, but it's like, there's still that fear of contagion. There's still that sort of like, deep-seated paranoia that we're going to like die of some illness still it's frustrating yeah is it paranoia though or is it just it's, it's a legitimate concern the- <laughs> people are right a bunch of our friends and family are getting like sick and dying so i mean it's a it's a founded founded fear it, i'm not <laughs> it's coming to terms with a new paradigm yeah for sure yeah i i think it is yeah that's such an interesting observation that you sort of opened up is was um the the covid era the death knell of the mosh pit yeah it's it's kind of I, I went to a show it was um God, who was it um but uh i've only been to like you know one or two shows in this whole thing like everybody in the crowd was like masking and it was just like imagine like you know a thousand punks and just like masks like try to like you know socially distance it was weird it was kind of cool but it was like weird yeah I heard lipstick sales took a hit. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, people are just gross people getting illness on the thing. I mean, <laughs> it makes sense. Just, just as why bother. <laughs> I, I'm so thrilled to hear that you're a punk rock aficionado. Tell me about some of your favorite bands. I mean, I kind of, one of the first things I did when I started working in entertainment was I got to work with the the Warp Tour official documentary, and it was just this crazy wild no thing, but it way. was fun. No way. That is so rad. It wasn't like the bands I wanted to record. Like, I think we were kind of recording a little more like kind of the ones that are like not your favorite bands there, but it was still super cool to just run around and shoot B footage for the documentarian. He was a neat guy. I mean, that was kind of the first internship I had during or after school. And it was like, we just kind of ran around shooting punk rock shows and that was pretty, pretty fun. This is at CalArts. This is uh, over at, this was kind of after uh, University of Southern California, the cinema television production program. Oh, right, right. Were, so uh, not, not CalArts. No, was, but, well, they're all kind of connected. I mean, they're all kind of similar okay. and they work together. And But uh, yeah, USC, they were they were the kind of the number one school for many years. And unfortunately, there was that just kind of bummer of a cheating scandal that really kind of knocked them off their pedestal. 
Which Tell me more about the cheating scandal. Was was that the one where all the parents were paying kids to take tests? And I mean, this was you know this wasn't really in the film school. This was in the general school. But a bunch of celebrities, you know, were were the parents that were sort of. Right. I had a buddy there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nothing nothing you wouldn't imagine. I think they made a episode of Suits about it. You know, it's something that kind of people almost joke about these days. But I had a friend who went there with me, and we were just talking about this. I hadn't talked to him in like five or ten years, and we were talking about the cheating scandal. And he was like, I'm not surprised. He's like, some of those frat kids just seem like dummies. <laughs> I was like, you're right. <laughs> like, just, you know, we were all a bunch of like summa cum laude, 4.0, you know what I mean? We just had to fight like tooth and nail to get in there. And there were these, these guys there that were like, you know, real like meatheads. <laughs> I was like, how did this happen? How did you and make it in here? <laughs> what, was this that very famous scandal where... I, yeah, I, I think I'm, it was like, who's Bill Macy's wife? Um, yeah, that's the one right? Felicity like, she Huffman. Got, yeah. <laughs> she, was, she was in Desperate Housewives, which I, I, binged, yeah, I, mean, I binged all of that series. I actually loved that series. I mean, it's not that surprising. You know, people are rich people are going to bribe people to give their kids preferential treatment. It's like... You know, I'm sure there was like a legal way they could have done it that didn't involve expressly paying some kid to, I mean, otherwise they could have just donated a wing of the library or, you know, there's, I mean, rich people are going to just buy their way into everything, but somehow oh. it just became, you know, the news cycle was, didn't have much going on. So they really kind of a stick it to these, but, uh, yeah, it really hurt the school's sort of prestige. That was kind of the downsides. Most of we just paid out the nose. I mean, it was very, very overpriced and it was like, we we're sort of paying for that sort of you know, respected status of going to a place that really was kind of the, so that you know, that was a little bit of a insult and injury to the graduates. Definitely. This was like, what, a decade ago? Yeah, it was a... At roughly the time frame for this Approximately a decade scandal, ago. I think you're I right. Think. Maybe, I mean, let's see. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because I've been out of school about or, or longer. four or five years. Yeah. Maybe, no, maybe a little bit more recent. I mean, something seven to 10 years ago, I think it really broke. It's still a great school. Seven I mean, they 10. have a... Yeah. They have some amazing teachers and, you know, the, I mean, like our, you know, intro to camera teacher was like the guy that his name was Bill Fraker. He's, he's since passed away. He was such a legend that he, uh, he shot like Tombstone. He shot the movie Bullet. I mean, he shot just these classic films and they actually had a montage during the Oscars just how about his, cool. him, just him. So, I mean, it was kind of wasted on us. We're just trying to figure out how to, you know, press record on a camera and you got this legend teaching you, but oh, he was such a nice guy <laughs> and so intelligent. I mean, that was a great, yeah, we had some great times, but they charged us up the nose. I mean, it was for kids going to school nowadays. I'm not sure if, you know, the return on investment is what it used to be. I mean, college is almost, you know, you could sort of save that money and, you know, spend 50 grand on like equipment, say to, you know, if you want to be a sound technician or buy, buy a, you know, buy a red camera or, you know, anybody going into film, like there's probably better ways you could invest that money though. I'm not sure if you could get it, you know, get a loan for it, but yeah, I don't know if college is always, higher education is, I mean, people need it. You know, it's, it's wonderful to learn things, but it's like, I mean, if you can get something in state or something with, you know, scholarships covered, I mean, that's the way to go. Well, it should be free. It, yeah, it should, it, be, free. It should I mean, be the way it happens in most of Europe. It, it should every, be- every country but ours. Yeah. I mean, we're the only, we're the only country that doesn't have healthcare, that doesn't have, and it's not really free, you know, it's tax paid. Like there, you know, it's taxes that people pay into and then they get a benefit. Like, yeah. I mean, it's justified. Yeah, it's just different, differently ordered priorities. And um, it, it seems to be that there's a large priority with um, a big faction of our government, <laughs> GOP, 
Um, and keeping people dumb, uneducated, ignorant, susceptible to conspiracy theories and willing to buy a big lie. I mean, it desperately feeds into that sort of hegemonic sort of role. And I mean, the frustrating thing about it, and I'm sort of, you know, a tinfoil hat guy, like it's frustrating because they've even found a way to sort of discredit and sort of like vilify conspiracy analysis. I mean, it's like you, you take, you know, you take the Twin Towers, whatever, and you associate it with like anti-Semitism. You associate it with like, you know, mega people. And you, I mean, they've kind of just found this diabolical way of sort of, you know, making people associate suspicion about the government and their nefarious deeds and like associate that with like these weird insults. Like, yeah, yeah. QAnon, just psychopath. Like it's, it's weird. Like I'm my mom went and saw that movie and I wouldn't see it. It was called Sound of Freedom. Have you heard about this? Oh my God. You, do you know what's hilarious, Jerome? Uh-huh. I take a nap before dinner almost every day. I need to have like two parts to my day because I get worn out. And I was listening to an episode of QAnon Anonymous, which I uh-huh. do heavily recommend. I, I listened half of it in and... um these fellows were completely talking about that film. Yeah. So at six o'clock tonight, I was listening to an analysis of that film. It's still like that. That discussion is fresh in my head. This is just bizarre. I could, I could rant for like an hour. So like, I mean, my mom like is against human trafficking, obviously. Like any any sane well, progressive, duh. you know, nobody wants human trafficking. So it's like, who's gonna have like an up with human yeah. trafficking T-shirt? <laughs> Go human trafficking. So they've created this like, you know, the kind of a straw man where it's like to criticize. Now, that guy who makes that movie, he's he directly worked under Trump doing like crazy shit. He was funded Uh by like the worst elements, the GD, the GOP. I mean, he's he's just a monstrous guy. Like the the fellow starring in it is a complete maniac who believes in nutty stuff i mean and i he's, he's actually kind of a great actor and other stuff but he's just a noxious human being when it comes to his like but i mean so you've got that guy the the guy the cia agent who the you know he's a, he's a real like bloodthirsty cia agent who's the movie's based on and that guy's out there trashing trans people saying trans people are causing human trafficking he's it always Mexican folds over warrior. into that it always folds yeah. over into like a, a hate speech of one kind or I another mean, they're, they're using sort of this like and it's, it's almost like a myth, this idea of like, I mean, there are real human trafficking issues, but they focus oh, yeah. on like the wrong ones. You know, they're not focusing on like Epstein and like these like, you know, all this, these problems we're having in the United States. They're saying we need to invade these foreign countries and send the, you know, America world police in there. I mean, it's all just feeds into this imperialist sort of and all this like anti-immigration, anti-GLBT. I mean, it's it's just feeding all these evil issues, but you can't criticize it because you're criticizing people fighting human trafficking. I mean, it's diabolical. Well, you can criticize it because I mean, the way do. they're we going about it is completely wrongheaded. And we we are actively criticizing him right now. I'm I'm a mother of three grown children and a grandmother of five, and of course, I would really be deeply horrified and saddened by any children being sold into human trafficking. That being said, I don't think putting my my vote behind anti-trans and anti-immigration and other hateful practices is going to do anything to keep children safe. And it's just so 
bizarre to me. I don't know if I want to use the word irony. I hate when people misuse the word irony. And yes, I'm looking at you, Alanis Morissette. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the, the big hero for so many of these people is like some gilded version of Trump, the savior sent from God, the man who publicly stated on national television that he would happily date his daughter if he hadn't fathered her. I mean, he's just sort of this horrifying dark mirror of sort of like what these capitalist sort of just business moguls want to be. They want to be this like, like Duterte, you know, American Duterte who just storms around like a, I mean, they talk about freedom and it's like, this is like literal fascism. We're seeing like just waves of like, oh, yeah. I mean, the scary thing about oh, yeah. the, that QAnon stuff, I mean, they're pushing a lot of that, like sort of the mythology behind it is almost like equivalent to what they used to demonize Jewish people during the Holocaust where they, you know, they accused them of like drinking Christian blood. It was called, they had some word for it, blood, blood something, but like, I mean, they created this sort of myth of these, you know, people controlling the world that need to be taken out. And it was like, they used that, like the, what was the name for it? It was, um, I can't. it was this like piece of propaganda. It was, um, the protocols of Zion. They spread this like sort of fake, supposedly leaked information. And then they use that to justify the Holocaust. I mean, that's what you're seeing now through QAnon. They're creating this sort of like a fictitious story that, I mean, literally is causing like hate crimes, causing people to shoot oh, up. Oh, yeah shoot up bars in Vegas. I mean, it's horrifying. It, it is absolutely horrifying. And I don't even know that it's sort of like, um, I think you could go exactly so far like, as to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would go so far as to say yeah, that. I mean, no joke. Like, No, we, we are, we are on the cusp of a fascist upsurge if we're not very careful. Sorry, listeners. We hope we're not getting you terribly depressed, but (laughs) not to to be a bummer about it. It's like so much of this stuff, you know, you want to, there it is. Yeah. It's like, you want to be positive. You want to be, you know, you don't want to like, there's this idea of doomerism, doomers and stuff, which they just kind of like say, Oh, the world's going to end in five years. So who cares? Who cares about environmental stuff? Who cares? Oh, that's just apathy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cynicism and it's sort of nihilism just pushed to the, I mean, correct. Who's that guy? uh, David Foster Wallace. Like he argued that like, that was like the root of all sort of contemporary evil was in this sort of just nihilistic, just kind of not caring about things. And it's like, that's what that sort of, that sort of mentality sort of pushes people towards. I love David Foster Wallace, by the way. Thank you for invoking his name. Oh, yeah. I need to read my, one of my best friends was always telling me his um, nonfiction stuff was amazing. I've read his books, but I haven't read any of his nonfiction or his short stories. And that's on my list for sure. Have you read his, you've read his essay, right? Consider the Lobster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a classic for sure. Yeah. It's well anthologized. No, he's extraordinary. What a guy. I feel like there's there's sort of a connection with him and like the government that I haven't like looked into enough, but like that book he wrote about the IRS before he died. Like, I mean, there's just some interesting stuff going on there. There's there's those questions that could be raised, aren't there? There's always. I mean, I'm I'm just you know, it's funny that lately I've been the one arguing about you know QAnon being crazy because it's like I'm the well, one, they are the one who's, yeah, they're no they're, they're totally legit crazy and wrong. And, Danger. I mean, they're kind of an op, you know, they're sort of a psyop that's just spun out of control into like scary ways. But generally, like there are a lot of real conspiracies like to be afraid of that I'm like real concerned about. There's another podcast that you might enjoy. Well, QAnon Anonymous, if you haven't listened 
No, I'll you, have to check that out. Yeah, I hadn't really been. Shit. I mean, I sort of was in my background awareness, but now that it's like trickling into like my daily life, it's like I need to <laughs> research this more and understand this phenomenon. It's entertaining too. Um, oh God, there was a, there's a documentary where the hosts of the Q Anon Anonymous were on. Um, God, about two years ago, which is also documenting Q Anon. I can't remember the name of the documentary right now. I could I could pause. I feel and like look we're going to get but, on some lists saying this stuff. We might have to edit this out. It kind of fine frightens me. I've been I've been off the radar for a while, but <laughs> nah. like we were talking about <laughs> we were talking about Occupy and uh, Standing Rock, and I was like. And then recently we had the George Floyd stuff was going on for like a year, just strong here. And it was like the amount of um, people that were sort of in, I mean, they, they did some real, I mean, not that they're not always listening to people and stuff, but they really, you know, did some like disturbing surveillance stuff just across the board on like anybody who was anywhere near that, which is kind of spooky, you know, from an authoritarian standpoint. Yeah. Well, um, Meet Fatigue Cast says, fuck authoritarians. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, seriously. Come and get us if you're brave enough. So, yeah, I mean, the beauty is like when we're so small, there's not really such a. I mean, it is, it is spooky to like look at these like celebrities that like, you know, when they die of like a heart attack or when they, you know, George Orwell, when he mysteriously falls out of a boat like a year after writing 1984, <laughs> like maybe he died. John of, Lennon. John Lennon, yeah. I mean, the amount of. There's, there's some kind of speculation that like there was, I mean, all Frank these writers Zappa. sort of. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's Hunter S. Thompson. If anybody wants something really interesting to sort of like dig into and just kind of think about, there's this um, program that was called the WPA Writers Grant and the WPA Artist Grant, and sort of I think it was around the fifties. But like all these people that they sort of they sort of funded and sort of promoted, it was all for these sort of political purposes. Like when the the CIA sort of pushed the uh, Abstract Expressionist movement. But they also supported all these like writers that like became sort of legendary American figures. And it's like, you got to wonder kind of what sort of oversight or what sort of messages were being. And these writers, I'm sure, meant well and stuff, but they sort of were working within the confines of this sort of propagandistic structure. And it is interesting for sure. Yeah, it is. And it would be more interesting than looking for basements that don't exist under pizza parlors and lizard people. <laughs> I knew I met. A, I dated a girl who believed in lizard people back in the day. <laughs> she kind of pulled that out. How long did like, that last? About until she told me about the lizard people. <laughs> I, I was, was going to say, did you hang yeah. in after she told you? Because I don't uh, know what. I, know, was, I think it kind of fizzled. It was just kind of like. <laughs> but California. I think that'd some, be a deal breaker. That was kind of a deal breaker, I think. But I mean, so, it is interesting. I mean. She really believed in that, huh? She she thought that was yeah, real. Yeah. I, I think the way she said it was she was like, I'm not one of those people that believe in lizard people. And she was like implying that she was to see if I was. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, the thing about the, the Pizzagate thing, and it's it's so kind of frustrating is because like, you know, all that stuff was sort of this confusing, ridiculous, ludicrous smokescreen. But it was sort of a smokescreen that was sort of covering all the Epstein stuff. I mean, there was a lot of like really weird, legitimate Bipartisan. I mean, Trump was on that island. Like every celebrity was on that island. Like there was well, kind of just all this creepy stuff going Prince on. Prince Andrew, like yeah, there's oh, Andrew. famously, <laughs> yeah. That, that documentary on uh, there's two of them on the Netflix. Uh, the one about I never say her name right, Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, Gl- oh, Ghislaine, you know what I, I love? Um, 
Chelsea Handler just calls her jizz. <laughs> that's, that's, awesome. that's a good mnemonic device to remember it by. How's she doing? I haven't heard much from her in a long time. I like her. Oh, Chelsea Handler? She, she's been doing stuff. She's been doing some fun reels on Instagram. Just, I, you I know. I be on there more often. Yeah, no, that, she's great. She's hilarious. Just smashing the patriarchy and <laughs> harder it, than I mean, ever before. It's a good time to smash a patriarchy. I mean, it's it's kind of a, it's just sitting there, you know, like a pinata ready to be smashed open. So, I mean, you guys take take some swings. Like, this is a time. Right. Yeah, it's impressive that you kind of are a master of multiple platforms. Like, I've just staying on Twitter. It's like everybody's moving over threads right now. There's so much sort of a... Are you going to move to threads, do you think? I, I started an account over there, but I mean, I've spent, you know, you put in the energy to sort of build build an account and just kind of starting from scratch. I mean, it's sort of a, it's kind of admitting defeat too. I mean, we can't let these people keep killing our platforms. You know, once, like once Facebook got, got sort of successful and people were sharing information and organizing and using it for political purposes, they just sent in all these just vile sort of uh, provocateurs and they sabotage things and spam things and shut stuff down and reported things. And I had a, an earlier account on Twitter, but uh, I made the mistake on Twitter in the previous account of sort of commenting on something and sort of a big post. I don't post anything on those, you know, big news posts anymore because I said the wrong thing and it just, my account was like shut down like overnight, like, and they found they pulled something else as a smoking gun to use it for, but it was like clearly because I was sort of posting things and you know that I shouldn't have been. It was sort of politically. It was something about sort of some weird. It was a really weird deal, but it was like Twitter. They don't they don't just delete your account; they lock it, so your account is just stuck there with everything dumb you drunkenly posted on there, just locked, and you can't touch it. And it's like really a frightening scenario. So I warn everybody, like. Be careful what you're posting if you're saying, you know, angry political stuff, because like your account could just be locked. And it took me like a year to get them to delete it for me. It was crazy. Wow. Isn't that weird? That's crazy. Yeah, that's totally weird. I had mine frozen for like only half a day. Although I, I've, I'm like once bitten, twice shy with that kind of stuff, because I'm like a Facebook jail bird like I'm, I'm, a repeat. <laughs> I'm a repeat offender because the ai that decides what fits what's in keeping with their so-called community standards and what is not doesn't um take context into account at all so you can wind up in Facebook. I feel like they almost use that as sort of an excuse and there's probably some real person behind there hiding behind an ai so they can like say like oh we don't you know we don't really monitor this it's just an AI our hands are tied but like I'm skeptical about that but yeah that that is really frustrating. Uh, yeah, I got thrown in jail one time because a bird start decided to try to um, argue with me and my my <laughs> PhD studies were in composition rhetoric and I. Uh, formally trained rhetorician. I'm like, you know, you're bringing a nail file to a gunfight <laughs> if you want to argue with me. And, you know, so, so all, of course, that's that's threats of violence is how Facebook interprets that. Yeah, they use, I mean, that was what, what they officially use. I mean, they, they dragged out an old post from like six months earlier to sort of, is sort of the smoking gun to get me. But it was a, they can sort of say anything, you know, is a threat of, I mean, they can sort of, there's, if you're posting anything political, they can sort of, 
you know, use that as a, you know, justification to shut an account down. So, I mean, we're sort of in this weird age of, and then you got those people baiting you, you know, I mean, it's almost a provocateur tactic. They call that sea lioning where they, you know, oh, I just want more information. They're just kind of trying to rile you up. They don't really care about reason. They don't, you know, you're not going to con- convince them. They're just trying to tire you, tire you out. You know, it's a really frustrating. And some of these guys, they're not even, you know, real people. There's like, you know, whether they're working for big pharma or they're working for, I mean, there are, there was a company called um, Correct the Record during the the big Bernie Sanders election. And they were just paid all this money. First, they came after Bernie supporters and they pretended, you know, they impersonated them and just said bad things. And they, I mean, they were just, then once Bernie lost, they came after the, the, the Green Party. I mean, these people really are out there and it's like, they're, you know, they're on record. Like, it's not like a conspiracy theory. There's like real companies that just sort of do that. Yeah. That, that, that's why this whole incel QAnon big lie bullshit is even more problematic because it's a distraction from the stuff we actually need to be concerned about. What's, what kills me about Trump is like the, the few things he'll say that are sort of accurate. You know, he'll start with like an accurate like premise. Like he'll be like, elections aren't trustworthy. And he'll be like, so that's why I lost. And it's like, you know, he'll just jump in this. He'll be like, news is <laughs> fake. And it's like, yes, news, there is a lot of fake news. And he's like, so the, this news is fake. And it's like, it just sort of discredits the idea of fake news or of like election, you know, lack of integrity. Like any other European country, our elections, you know, they don't have exit polls anymore. They don't have, they don't have recounts. I mean, like they have electronic voting machines owned by the Bush administration. I mean, owned by Dick Cheney connected companies. I mean, there's all kinds of just terrifying stuff out there. If you dig just a little bit and it's like, nobody's investigating because why would they want to have, you know, fair elections. I mean, when you can just so easily rig them. Right. Listen to us. Oh my goodness. We have gone off on this huge rant. The uh, other- I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so in the woods. I'm so deep in the woods always. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. So wait a minute. It's fun, uh, though. You were in college a decade ago? Maybe a little more, a little more than that. Cause let's see, maybe like 15 years ago. I'm, I'm like 40. I graduated maybe something like yeah, about 15 years ago or so. Okay. Yeah, so you're a young guy. And you were in L.A.? Yeah, yeah. Which I, part I grew of up Cal- in Minnesota, and then I, I moved to L.A. to go to school, and then I was out there for, you know, five or seven more years after graduating. It's just a, it's a great, I mean, you can live there poorly, but you can't save a dime, and you, you can't ever afford to own. I mean, all the prices are like 10 times what they are here. I mean, they're catching up here, but... You know, everybody who owns out oh, there yeah. is sort of people in that dynastic class that, you know, I mean, they're inheriting tens of millions. Then they're using that to, you know, a house out here, they'd be like 200K, be 1.5 mil there easy, just a little one bedroom rambler. So it's like, you know, you kind of have to commit to just never saving a dime and just being behind the eight ball forever and just working 18 hour days. So some people have made it. I mean, I have some friends, I had a good friend um, from school who's, who's, you know, he directed a movie on Netflix. He's got an amazing sort of popular website, but he was just interviewed um, on Setu's podcast. Setu Bilingual Journal has an amazing critical conversation series. And he's kind of a good example. I mean, there are some people through sheer cool. hard work and genius that kind of make it happen. But, you know, it's it's definitely like the a pretty small minority that, and usually there's some, like I know a few people that are that really, you know, just are amazing writers and they put in the time and they, you know, paid their dues. And it was like, it took like a lot of internshipping and just sort of, you know, just like, I mean, a lot of stuff that you weren't, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it's like, 
it definitely isn't a model that everybody could do to sort of work those lengthy unpaid internships to sort of get a foot in the door. It definitely preferences right. sort of a more, a more sort of privileged class. I mean, it, they also are super talented. I mean, it's, you know, you have to have like connections, capital, and just amazing work ethic to sort of, I mean, you can, you can make a living out there. Like there are, there are, you know, like <clears throat> my friends that work in sound just love it and they have a good career. They're respected. They're well-paid. They, you know, I mean, they're always working like, like if you're willing to sort of do really commit to a crew position, like in the camera department, grip electric, like there are jobs, but it's like, if you want to be creative, if you want to be writing, directing the more romantic stuff, it's like, you just have to kind of almost do it somewhere else or find a really good day job and sort of, you know, just put all your, all your energy and sort of everything you've got coming in into that on the side. Yeah. I hear that. No, I lived in Southern California for a while. I lived there. Um, just kind of for in, in San Diego, actually. Oh, for, San Diego's the, the music scene. So was that back when you were a punk rocker? The music scene out there? Yeah, was the I was. I was there from oh, yeah. 1981 to 1987, kind of for the whole um, rise and the the whole apex and. The beginning oh, of the yeah. decline of the whole um, SoCal punk rock movement. I mean, there's still some good stuff. Those guys have a lot of good folk punk and stuff, but it's like, unfortunately, they're just, they're hemorrhaging, you know, the working class. Like anybody who's not like mega wealthy is just sort of like moving somewhere else. So it's like, it's got to be hard to sustain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like now. No, I've, that was a, a whole. I dated the roadie for Battalion of Saints and oh, hung out. Oh, that's dope, though. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> People are like, wait, she part of the Battalion of Saints is still alive to talk about it? Yeah, there's... Do you ever, you ever remember the, the band Odin? They were like a hair band? You know, I was... O-D-I-N? I know the name. I do. My, he was uh, my the, cousin was ma- was married to one of the, the, I think it was like a lead singer or one of those guys. Or, oh, it was a really weird deal. Crazy. But, <laughs> Here's yeah, the thing. World. Like back in the day, there was a real um, hard felt and strictly observed divide between the punkers and the metal rockers, who we called the Hessians. <laughs> and um, like an SLC punk, it was like a real like. Oh yeah, Capulets and Montagues. Worse, like you wouldn't even walk into the same part of the park where the Hessians were, and you know, I I feel like we we were on the the better side of things because, to be fair, a lot of our judgment was because um, gay people, trans people, anyone that was identified by them as a freaky, punky looking people would just be like savaged just beat up yeah that stuff i mean those skinheads are just i remember i think it was in san diego that we went to some show and my some skinheads like jumped our little little buddy it was just a young cool little punk rock kid but he was latino and they were just these racists and it was like i mean it's crazy to just see a hate crime occur with somebody you're really close with i mean just right there yeah right you're just like this is a hate crime we i mean i wasn't i didn't see it happen but uh this just happened to a friend of mine and i'm like right outside I was friends with a group of guys who went by fags who fight back. 
and fags who bash um, big, yeah. big buff gay guys who like if if, if you thought you're going to fag bash, you had another thought coming pretty quickly. Those bears will knock you out. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been talking all this time without me asking you to read anything, which seems Nothing like about a, literature at all. <laughs> Just ranting about politics. No. You know, you know, here's the thing, and you probably, you've listened long enough to know, I don't come into these with a, a plan. I kind of just see where it goes, and tangents are encouraged, and I just like to kind of follow my guest, too, down whatever roads they might meander down. So this is, this is what I like. I hope I hope you can cobble something together that's coherent. This is uh, this is fun though. I love to rap about this stuff. It's something that I just don't get enough. You know, you're so knowledgeable about these subjects, and you have such an interesting background in the arts and stuff. So it's like it's so so fantastic to speak with you about this stuff. Oh, thank you. Well, I am wondering. We we are going to shift gears a little bit because I think, and also I don't worry about cobbling something together. I think all of this is wonderful and. I think people enjoy listening to people having fun, yeah, having for sure. conversation, and that's what so many episodes are anyway. So, um, well, your show is always the best. I've listened to every episode I've heard. I've just loved. I, I can't recommend it. anybody who's listening now. Check the other stuff out. I mean, there's so many great. And you'll meet some people you'll just want to read too. I mean, Lauren Charhag and. What was that great collection she did with those with those other? It was kind of a collaborative poetry collection. It was amazing. The one we the one we published. Yeah, the one you produced. Yeah, Midnight Glossolalia. Yeah, oh, I love that word. What? Yeah, that that is a fine collection, really. And, and all those guys appear in Meet for Tea too. So if anybody wants to read more, they oh, should be checking they've out. They've become journal. regular contributors, yeah. as have you. Um, you own that one, don't you? I thought you. I think. I think. <clears> you <throat> midnight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I got it. I read that thing right away. It was extraordinary. I, I, I seem to remember down. shipping it to you. Yeah, they're no, it's super. Amazing. Aren't they good? They're so good. Yeah. Lauren, that, that one story you published, Lauren's about uh, mermaids. If anybody wants to read some fantastic, <clears throat> fantastical real or magical realism, that what, what, do you remember what episode, what issue that mermaids short story was in? It's just phenomenal. Oh, I could look it up. It's so good. I'm trying to remember that. Is it, it should called- be like a movie. It should be like a series. I, you know what? I told her, oh my God, you're, you're just so residing in my brain right now. I told her Netflix should would do well to pick it up. Yeah, Netflix should be optioning that. I mean, it's a it's a story that's just natural for. I mean, it could be like a mini series or something. It could be like wouldn't a it be show. a great like six to eight parter? And it feels almost like a like a Tales from the Crypt episode too. I mean, it really reminds me of like those classic EC comics sort of. I mean, it's it's just a great story. It's like I think it was called um, Finn and Feather or Feather and Finn. I'm yeah, yeah, I've got it somewhere. It's, uh, I think I downloaded the episode. It's so nice that you had those issues available to get as ebooks too, so you can sort of. We read them always on your phone. do. That's huge. We always do. The five dollar PDFs are always available. We're totally worth it. I mean, your your issues are. I still, you know, I, I think I'm in two or three of them, and there's still some stuff I've missed. Where like somebody, I'll be, they'll be like, oh, "I was in me for tea," and I'm like, "Which issue?" And they're like, "The one you're in." And I'll pull it out and be like, "How did I miss this the first time?" I mean, they're just everything in there is just gold. Oh, thanks so much. I think she might have been in the Russian caravan issue. 
That sounds like, I think you might be right. That sounds like the one. Yeah. I mean, your, your themes are so interesting. What's your next one? The last one is bread, right? The loaf. Or loaf. loaf. Ah, yeah. What a theme. Thank you. You know the story behind them, right? Do you know where they come from? I mean, from? I know you're a master baker. Was it related to your master baking? No. Okay. So from the very inception of Meat for Tea, when... um co-founding editor Alexandra Wagman, who is herself a Cal Arts graduate, by the way. Oh, wow. From L.A. Um, When she suggested we start a literary journal, and I gave her the name Meat for Tea, which had formerly been a band. Yeah, you told me about it. I want to hear you playing the drums. Is it the drums you were playing? I was playing keys. I was playing keys. Or the keys, keyboard, the usher, yeah. Keys, synth. But... um, yeah, I'm really rusty right now. I can't seem to find time to get to my piano, which um, is sitting across from me, like looking at me. It's like right there. You got to build in some time. I want to hear you rocking that thing. <laughs> I play a lot of classical mainly, but I, I do do other stuff. But anyway, we decided right then and What's there. What's your favorite classical um, composer play? Um, Eric Satie. Oh, I love Satie. Satie's my favorite too. I, wanna, I like oh, playing man. the no CMs, especially a lot. You should play some right now. Elizabeth. I love playing the sati. The- you should play some no scenes right now. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wish I could. I can't right now because oh. of where the mic is and where the piano is and where the time is. But yeah, the, sati fits comfortably under my fingers. They feel happy playing him. He's so good. But anyway, yeah, he's we- the best. Well, I think he's the the very, very great-grandfather of experimental music. I think if it were not for Satie, we wouldn't have Eno. I think he kind of paved the way. Oh, totally. That's a great analogy. Yeah, well, you know, I read it somewhere. I can't take credit um, (laughs) because it's just true. But uh, Philip Glass, everyone, they all owe a debt to the grandpappy. Sati, who is a, a weird with, uh, old was bird. It Picasso? Was it Picasso that he did that that uh, that big play? It was like Parade or something, where it was all, with all the horses. And I mean, what was it? Stroh? Uh, Diaghilev. Uh, he did yeah, it with, with yeah. Diaghilev. Yeah. Isn't that wild? And musically, Ooh. it is so experimental. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we, we named it Meat for Tea. And um, the very first issue was themed Gristle. Gristle, it's a great, great title. Thank you. And we decided on the spot that it would alternate between, and this is going to seem like obvious as obvious as obvious when I tell it to you, we'd alternate between meat years and tea years. So now when you go back over all your issues, you're going to see a pattern emerge. Interesting. I've been sort of tracking that, but I hadn't. I hadn't known the specifics. That's fascinating. So loaf, um, meatloaf. Yeah, we we were still in a meat year in Russian caravan. We were obviously in a tea year. Interesting. And that's a great idea. Yeah, it, we just did it. We originally had a um, pretend editor in chief because <laughs> it was Alex and me. 
And we had our pretend editor-in-chief, Meaty Gonzalez. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a true story. That's amazing. No, I've, I've kind of got a, I've got a pretend designer and the, the uh, heterodox uh, haiku journal, just in case anybody comes after us for legal things, for using images and stuff. I'm just going to pin it on this oh guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Great minds <laughs> think alike. Great minds totally like think what? alike. <laughs> We had Meaty Gonzalez for years, and actually we had um, Meaty Gonzalez wrote the salutations from the editor. We'd take turns with them. You can probably find some of those very, very early issues. The ones that I can't find I should, or that I don't have enough of to sell, I should probably read some of those out loud on um, Patreon yeah, episodes of the podcast. Yeah, you got to share some of those, digitize them, post them on the Twitter or something. That'd be amazing. I'd love to. Those, those things are always a highlight of the issues for sure. Meaty actually even got snail mail sometimes. It was hilarious. Really? Yeah. You got fan mail? <laughs> That's extraordinary. Not fan, but just like people, um, it, you know, you can say you're only accepting submissions online, but some asshole's going to send you an envelope. <laughs> <laughs> Rest assured. Do you know Belinda Superman by any chance? Um, I, I bet she's published something with you. She's a, she, she does a, the gas, the, um, it used to be called Gypsy. It's a art and poetry sort of running running series. But she, she in one of her um, books of poetry, she talks about sort of just how abusive and crazy people were back in the snail mail days, and they they wouldn't send the stamps, and they just do this crazy stuff. And I mean, she she has this one rant. It's like ten pages, and it's like so good. Oh my god, I, I want to read it. She's yeah. Amazing. yeah, she's so cool. Her painting too. Oh, her painting is extraordinary. Okay, I need to get to know her. So yeah, media existed for a long time, and we would have actually. Um, if you have any um, any complaints, please address them to Media Gonzalez, which is basically <laughs> you know, <laughs> tell it to the hand. It's it's funny. Uh, like our our haiku journal, we get like a lot of those uh, cam girls like soliciting us, and they're oh my like, God, that's hey, so hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so they'll they'll friend you, and you'll friend them back because you know I always you know I follow, what's the word uh, mutual anybody. But like, then we'll get these like erotic things addressed to a haiku journal. <laughs> they're like, "Hey, heterodox, <laughs> like, I wanna," and they'll just say like all kinds of naughty things. Do you think? Do you really think weird. the word hetero? Th- maybe they're maybe that's, that's so what they're. Weird. <laughs> I think they see the word hetero, and they think. I know it is. It is in there. I mean, it's a. <laughs> it's so definitely like, oh. encoded in the language. <laughs> the etymology. Ironically, it's a super gay friendly. I mean, we're like our first issue was all all gay stuff. <laughs> So it's not just hetero, <laughs> hetero poetry. And we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. So what would you like to read, Jerome? You can read something from anything you want. One thing, I, I brought a couple things. How about, um? so there's two, when you take haiku or senyu and you, you kind of put them together, they form either a sequence or a string. They're starting to differentiate. Uh, a sequence sort of has a beginning and an end. It's sort of a linear thing where a string is sort of more kind of things connected with a, with a theme. Um, they're kind of based on Japanese traditions. Um, the the words in, in the original language are gunsaku and rensaku. I think I could be saying that wrong, but um, but this is sort of a kind of a linear sort of narrative that goes in order. So it's kind of it's, it's based on. Um, it's something I put together for this website, Newverse News, edited by the amazing James Penha. And they, uh, 
he's in Bali actually, just an amazing guy, really interesting writer. He's got a collection that I highly recommend reading. Um, but uh, they have a really specific sort of thing they're looking for with their website where people are sort of writing poetry based on current events, but you're not really supposed to. How cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a really interesting idea, but it's it's really tricky to sort of write a haiku poetry or send you poetry that sort of does that because you they want you to sort of not just, you know, replicate the headline, but sort of build on it. But uh, you can't really build on it with things that sort of create fake news and sort of give people, you know, wrong ideas about the current event. So it's like really kind of tricky to hit this sort of sweet spot. But this story was about um, these dogs that were living in the, um, what was that power plant in Russia that sort of went crazy? They made a, a Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. There's all these dogs that like have just sort of mutated and they've like, they've been thriving. All these animal life has been sort of thriving in this mutant form around that area and sort of that exclusion zone. And it's just a fascinating story, but uh, I've been watching a lot of TV sort of about the Berlin Wall. And recently, actually, I've been watching some stuff about North Korea and South Korea. So it's like kind of that sort of connection between, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union and what is it they're saying? There was an article the other day, like 75% of Russians like miss the Soviet Union compared to this sort of evil capitalist Russia they're living in now. Oh, yeah. Putin. Fuck him. It's tricky because it's like, you know, when they bash, you know, when our, when the GOP or, you know, both sides kind of trash China and Russia, they're sort of trashing them like they're, they're communists. And it's like, they're the biggest capitalists on earth right now. I mean, the government's not the people, but it's like to criticize Russia, we're not really criticizing, you know, socialism. We're sort of criticizing this like bastard, you know, capitalized version of it. So it's just confusing, but uh, it makes for interesting poetry. But I'll, so th- this is called National Park. It's um, maybe a 10-poem sequence. I'll just blow through it. National Park. Near 50-odd past, generations of curs in the fallout. Plume rose up into the air, but has it dissipated? Toys left behind during hasty retreat from exclusion zone. Through ruins of the power plant, barrel strays mutating. Irradiated populations not eradicated over the dog years, unmolested other kingdoms, time to flourish. The casualties by necessity continue evolving. Beneficial adaptations, can they be reabsorbed into populations? Tempering, for weathering this boiling world, roaming the wastes, admiring the many sunflowers. That, uh, that last stanza is also sort of a reference to a famous poem by uh, Kobayashi Issa. It was something like we're we're walking on the roof of hell looking at sunflowers or something. It's one of his one of his best works, but um that was kind of a little bit of an illusion there. Nice. Also um that that uh line about the dog years, a uh, really good friend of mine, um kind of a mentor of mine, uh John Zeng, Z H E N G. He often publishes under under a different name I'm going to butcher it, but um, Jianzing, I think is how it's pronounced in the Chinese. But um, he wrote a really excellent collection of poetry. He's written a few collections exploring his time. Um, under Mao, they had those um, re-education camps. And he spent sort of some memorable time in his childhood just sort of oh, getting yeah. viciously. And I mean, it was sort of, I mean, it wasn't, you know, he describes it with this Re-educated. really fascinating sort of, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, he didn't enjoy it, you know, it was kind of miserable stuff and it's sort of, you know, he ended up, you know, moving to the States and sort of, 
I mean, being a real, you know, intelligent sort of educated scholarly guy, I mean, just sort of forced into picking, you know, in the, in the fields and stuff, it was a real tough time for him, but he, he wrote some amazing poetry based on those experiences they, they were sort of these really seminal sort of a uh, formative sort of things for him. And he collected one recently, he just released a book and it's just extraordinary. It's, um, it's called the dog years of reeducation. So if anybody ever wants to read about that from somebody who's just like the best, the best high bun poet and one of the best poets on, on earth right now, John Zang, oh, this wow. extraordinary, highly recommended going to have to put all these in the show notes. And I think, I think I'm just going to go and add, add, I think about half a dozen now books that you recommended to my oh, library, yeah. awesome. which is already a couple thousand books. Full, yeah. If anybody but... likes Highbun, he, he's kind of the, the master of Highbun. I mean, they just added nice. the Highbun form. It's a, it's kind of a combination you probably know, but it's a combination of prose poetry and um, short form poems. So either a haiku or a send you, is sort of, you know, interspersed throughout the prose poetry, but uh, he really just is sort of the master of that form. And he, um, he's a big editor too. He's been editing, he formed the um, Mississippi Review. No, I'm, I'm not saying it right, but um, he, he's editing this journal in the college he works at and it's just phenomenal. But uh, if, you, if anybody likes High Bun, um, Drifting Sands High Bun is one of the big publishers and they've always got his work in there and it's so fun to read. I mean, it's so interesting. He's just an amazing writer. I love oh, he's, got a, he's got a collection of Haibun. It's called um, A Way of Looking. It's kind of the best Haibun book I've ever read. So if wow. anybody ever wants to learn about Haibun, A Way of Looking is just, it, it's all set in sort of the Mississippi, sort of around like kind of the New Orleans area, the Delta, Delta Blues. He's sort of a blues aficionado. He knows all the history of the jazz and blues musicians, and he kind of works that sort of space into his kind of the parallels with, you know, the kind of the sharecropping and all the kind of difficulties that the different populations sort of were exposed to during that time. It really paralleled a lot of his ch- kind of childhood experiences in, in China. So it's just fascinating to sort of see the East and the West meeting in that sort of setting. It's amazing. How very cool. If Joshua Michael Stewart is not familiar with this guy, I know he wants to be. I bet sounds- he is. He's so smart. His, his, he gave me that reading list and, oh, he is, that guy knows his stuff. I mean, he is well-read and Isn't so talented he- at writing, man. Yeah, and and he plays banjo. He plays and, banjo. And he plays he blues. <laughs> what a cool guy! Yeah, he, if he doesn't know about this, this guy, he's gotta he's gotta check it out because oh, I love that guy. What was his his name? They're like book? kindred spirits. Oh, he's such a cool dude for sure. Yeah, Joshua Michael Stewart's pretty rad. I'm I'm proud to count him among my friends. He actually has a bunch of um, Tonka. In the loaf issue of Meat for Tea, I gotta read that issue. I'm sorry, I've been sort of, I've been sort of publishing a lot of stuff, and there's been all this kind of editing I've been doing on different stuff, and I'm sort of a little bit behind on reading, but I want to read that loaf issue. Oh, cover no cover. apologies. Mm-hmm. There's so much to stay on top of. Yeah, you shared some great stuff in there. The Shahai, the the Haiga you shared by um, Ivanka Edinger was. I just love phenomenal. her. Wow, she's the best. She's amazing. She's so cool. So briefly before we get into um, the only three questions I ever ask, which are at the end of every episode, what brought you to your interest in um, these short forms, haiku, haibun, senru? What was the path? I kind of, I remember as a kid, I always liked them, but I think some book, there were a couple of books I read sort of in rapid succession. And one of them was, um, 
Death Poems, D-E-A-T-H, Death Poems by Yola Hoffman. And it's kind of, it's not all haiku, you know, but it's all these poems that were written by these, you know, samurai. I mean, in, in Japan, it's just traditional to write sort of a death poem and either you write it on your deathbed or, you know, if you're a soldier, they kind of, you know, the person dies and they pull it out of their pocket and they've just been walking around with this death poem on them. So it's kind of a, just this, but uh, Yola Hoffman collected just all the best of them. And it, it really kind of introduces you to sort of these traditions and their roots in Zen Buddhism and just kind of the, just kind of the beauty of it. And then um, Robert Haas has this book called The Essential Haiku that really kind of is an amazing introduction to sort of the form and just kind of the history with Tonka and, you know, Waka and all the, how this stuff sort of, you know, moved. And um, there's another book by Charlotte de Gregorio. Um, it's called uh, Haiku and Senryu, uh, uh, Senryu, A Simple Guide for All. And it really kind of teaches you sort of about how to write what's considered a correct, you know, publishable ELH, English language haiku kind of, it, it kind of walks you through that stuff. So I mean, nice. that was kind of the three, three books that kind of bring you there. There's another one I just, uh, Joshua Gage recommended to me. It's called um, The Haiku Handbook by uh, Higginson. And uh, that one really, I mean, I, I almost, you know, would start mm. with those other ones, but uh, The Haiku Handbook really gets into sort of how these conventions came about and sort of the roots, you know, where haiku evolved from the Ranga tradition and sort of how the, you know, all this collaborative stuff kind of goes together and where the, where the three line breaks. I mean, there's kind of an assumption that three lines, you know, isn't, is just this arbitrary thing that Westerners came up with. And it's not exactly true. I mean, there really were, you know, there were the, the cutting mechanism, the Kareji, I think I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but, um, the cut that they have in the on, it did usually traditionally occur either at the end of the first line or the end of the second line. I mean, you can, people did kind of get more experimental and sort of put it in the middle of the lines and stuff. But like traditionally it was like the five, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables with like a break either in the first or the second line. So it's like, there is really, no, cause I heard oh, that yeah. was based on a mistranslation. So that, that's the urban myth. Yeah. I mean, it's the more you kind of dig into stuff, I mean, it's really fascinating. And it's like, I mean, typically they were done from, you know, top to bottom in like one line. But the, 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 the place that the sort of the cutting punctuation was placed was sort of at one of those five or seven line points. And it's kind of, I mean, the, the fact that sort of the 17 syllables is way more wordy than a, like in, a, in our collection, um, funny pages that we just produced, it's a lot of 17 syllable short poems, micro poems. But really, I mean, you could almost say that at that length, you're sort of creating almost more of a Tonka length sort of thought. I mean, a lot of the, like the most popular book of Tonka in the, you know, in kind of our lifetime or the last, life, maybe last century, it was called um, Salad Anniversary. And they're all three-line Tonka. So they almost look like 17-syllable haiku, but they're Tonka. They're just in three lines. So it just kind of confuses things. I mean, all this definitional stuff, it gets so muddy and everybody wants to say, this isn't a haiku, this isn't a Tonka, you know. You got to do it this way. You got to do it. And everybody's got a different sort of opinion on what that means. So it's it's tough for the the person who's sort of entering this space to sort of navigate, like everybody's giving you a pulling you in different directions. And I recommend just going for it. I mean, you know, each mm -hmm. of the journals kind of has their own, their own preferences. You know, if you read what they're publishing, you'll see kind of, you know, is this more of a experimental journal like bones or five fleas? Is this more of a nature oriented traditional journal? And 
even within that nature orientation. Like Frog Pond. Yeah, well, Frog Pond, I mean, they, they kind of run the full gamut and they're, they're, they're known for it. And, oh, cool. And the, it's interesting. Frog Pond has a, has a main editor and a haiku column editor. So they, they typically, recently it was, um, until recently it was Tom Sacramona and Brad Bennett, but now it's, um, now it's, um, Nicholas Klandinsky is the, uh, the column editor and the main editor is, um, uh, now I'm having a mind blank, but, um, that's okay. but they're, they're both, they're both amazing editors and it's kind of changing. So, I mean, you can, you know, keep frog pond is a tricky one because they have so many, you know, there's like 600 members of the, maybe more in the world and they're vying for that space. And, you know, a lot of it goes to the really established, you know, the kind of the, the legends sure. are sort of getting a lot of that. So it's like, it's pretty typical for people to submit to frog pond for, even like the best poets. I mean, I know some of the best poets I know are really, you know, respected, admired, highly published people. Like they're getting in a frog pond, you know, every once in a while. I mean, it's just, there's so little space and so many people fighting for it that they have to be really sort of, you know, unfortunately they have to make a lot of tough decisions. And like they say, there's a lot of great poems that just, they don't have the space for. I understand. I, I, I'm in a, a kind of a similar predicament right now. I received so many good submissions for the loaf issue and actually for a couple more preceding that, that unfortunately there's a few that are languishing. I, I've, I've read them, but they're waiting for me to make my final determination. And honestly, a lot of them are so, so good that I've decided what I'll do is open up a very short call for new submissions and then I'm going to go through and publish a bunch of these that have been um, patiently sitting for the past issue or two and um, pick up all, all the gold that's sitting there. And I, I think I'll theme, in light of that circumstance, I think I'll theme the next issue casserole. Oh, that's a great idea. I mean, that's the beauty of you being sort of the editors. You can sort of make your own rules. I do, <laughs> with impunity. <laughs> I absolutely do. I mean, Midi Gonzalez, I mean, where'd that come from? And he's, yeah, he's dead now. Guy. We had to kill him. Blame it on me. You got to bring Meaty back. You got to resurrect Meaty Gonzalez. <laughs> oh, my God. The resurrection of Meaty. What a fabulous idea. Really? The resurrection. That's actually a title for a book, The Resurrection of Meaty Gonzalez. That could be your your next collection of poetry too. <laughs> I'd buy that. that totally good, right? Totally. So I'm going to move us on. This has been like you are so knowledgeable. What a treat! You, you just you should you should be teaching university classes in these. I wish I had a Japanese PhD in those things. I almost got a got a job teaching at a university before I left LA, but. It's tough when you don't really have, you know, I just have a bachelor's degree, but someday I'd love to, I'd love to teach. You're I mean, so I knowledgeable. Stuff. And if anybody ever is struggling, if anybody ever needs any advice about like publishing, I, I have a pin tweet. I kind of took it off because right now I have the, the book release, but um, I've got a, I've got all kinds of guides for how to, you know, deal with this publishing stuff and sort of etiquette and just sort of recommendations and cover letters. So if anybody's ever like trying to figure stuff out, shoot me a message. I'm happy to happy to help anyone because this stuff, you know, it's so much easier if somebody just kind of points in the right direction because so much of this stuff isn't, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't guess without kind of a little bit of experience. This is so good hearted of you. 
that that's why I'm still on Twitter too, is because of you and Ivanka. And also like I was so angered when the musky one bought it because I'd finally just crafted this uh-huh. writer's community and it was asshole free. I'd curated this yeah. space. <laughs> And then he buys it. I'm like, no, dude, you don't get to take this away from me. I spent some time tightly curating this. Yeah, it's maddening. I mean, this is sort of the frustration of these tech oligarchs kind of controlling our media. I mean, this is why this, you know, people say they don't want to, you know, government interfering, blah, blah, blah. But it's like the alternative in the free market is just like the richest monsters just kind of get to come in and just like Which is disrupt gross. everything. Yeah, just destroy it and sort of pervert it. And I mean, that's kind of the alternative. Like, I don't know how we, you know, in a capitalist system, I don't know how the sane, you know, sane voices and perspectives will ever be able to sort of, you know, beat like the the Musks and Bezoses and Gates and all those guys. It's just terrifying. Meaty Gonzalez for president. <laughs> Meaty Gonzalez, I'd vote for him. Right? You should run for the Green Party. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, who's that guy with the rat? What was his name? Like the, he's kind of a, he wears a boot on his head. Roden, ex, Extreme or something. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Oh my God. How funny. So like Jerome, what are you reading these days? I know you just listed off like about eight books yeah. already, but so, what- uh, I just finished like two books today. I've sort of been like on a roll, but, um, I just read this book called, you read a lot. Yeah, I do. I- not enough. I mean, it's been kind of a bad year for me, but um, this book, it's a Danish book by this, um, I'm not going to say her name right, but the book is called Baboon. It's by this Danish author and she's just extraordinary. It's sort of short stories and it's like kind of almost like Kafka meets Camus, but it's also oh like, my God. like Jillian, Flynn, Jillian Flynn and like Patrick, Patricia Highsmith. I mean, it's freaking weird, but it's like so good. And it's like, it's kind of horror, but it's not, I mean, it's not like, you know, there's not monsters and people dying, but it's just like, humanity and like human nature is just so horrifying like but yeah it's called baboon if you ever want to read it, i think it won a pen book award or something and what's her name can you can you spell it let me let me figure it out i got it you know let me let me just pull up a tab i'll figure it out i speak german i might be able to wrap my tongue around the danish in some it's in danish yeah it's a, her name is a nadja nadja marie uh a-i-d-t nadja marie eight I think it. I think that's probably it. I think that's, but uh, it's really good. I mean, it's. Oh my god, that sounds incredible. It's extraordinary. It's phenomenal. And then um, Orwell. I had a good friend. This is years ago. He was like, "I'm going to read every book by Orwell," and I was like, "I should do that too." So I've been trying to catch up, and I finally read. Um, now tell me which is right, homage or homage? Which is a pr- correct pronunciation? I but say o- homage. Homage to Catalonia. I say homage. I think you're. I think you're correct. Homage to Catalonia is a book about the Spanish Civil War. It's just extraordinary. I mean, it's like it's kind of dense. You know, he really gets into the minutia of sort of the kind of the inner party squabbles between between the anarchists and the communists. But it's like so. I mean, he's just. You've got George Orwell. You know, in there in the right at the front, like dealing with just looking at just people just being ridiculous and sort of trying to fight fascism. And it's like all that stuff, you know, it's so relevant to this day. 
And then the it's a two part book. So Definitely. the second half is called Sadly. Yeah, yeah. The second half of the book, it's a two part book put together. It was was um down and out in London and Paris. And it's like Orwell like working as a dishwasher. And just I've read like that. Working there, you read that? Oh, it's so yep. good. It's so good. It's amazing. I read that one. Hilarious. I read I mean, that as dope. a standalone, yeah. not as a second yeah. part to anything. It made me feel a lot less miserable. Yeah, um, it gives you perspective. I, well, because I, I, I don't have a full PhD. I have most of a PhD, which means I got to work. Wow. Uh yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't finish, but th- there's a certain amount of hubris. And um, at th- that point in time, I was a single mother of three, and then child support stopped coming in. So I had to moonlight at another part-time job and pick up another teaching section. I was trying to do a doctorate, too. So I, I don't know really what I thought I was made of, but... <laughs> I mean, the important thing is you were in those classrooms learning that stuff. You know, I mean, a piece of paper, like five years later, it means nothing. You know, like all the stuff you've done is your resume. Like, you know, you don't need like a degree. to. It's in my head. Yeah. I mean, you were at, you were in those classrooms. You read those books. I mean, that's all that matters, really. You know, people can. I mean, there's a way with these, you know, TED Talks and, you know, things, these master classes on YouTube. I mean, you can learn all this stuff like there's, you know, people don't have to spend a zillion dollars to kind of get all this information, like finally it's available. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe someone will see their way clear to maybe an honorable after 17 years of producing meat for tea. Yeah, so. how, how do you get those? You deserve that. I mean, I, I was looking into that myself. I was like, if I could just get an honorary PhD, I could like teach somebody somewhere. I mean, they still hire adjuncts and stuff, but it's like, I'd love to just be able to teach somebody somewhere. Like, I feel like I know some things. <laughs> That's what Orwell's down and out really, um, it alleviated my feelings of abjection while I was adjuncting. There's a mouthful, but <laughs> yeah, good alliteration there. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But it really did help a lot. Yeah. That's a wonderful book. It's wow. His days as a stage. Just oh, so, so interesting. Brutal. And it's, like, it's no different either. I mean, I've had, you know, I've sort of been like almost a Bukowski with these weird, just like, you know, real like unskilled, like vicious positions I've had on and off. I mean, I kind of bounced from like really prestigious stuff to really like, you know, washing dishes and working in like medical device assembly and like a floor where I'm covered in soot from head to toe. And there's, you know, things on fire that we're putting out with. Oh my like, God. I've, I've kind of been in both those settings. So it's like when you've kind of, when you've got Orwell's, you know, sort of the Orwell perspective, and then you're like in this weird, you know, like insane, surreal world of like, you know, peace, peace labor where, you know, there's whistles blowing, there's poison gas. And it's like, I mean, it's great that you got someone with Orwell's mind to just kind of like put that on the page and like report back almost like, you know, Upton Sinclair with the jungle or something. It's like, you need almost like undercover people. Like who is that, that brilliant gal who, who went into a mental institution and like, just to see how horrifying it was and like, kind of oh, got him shut down. Nellie Bly, was that her yeah, name? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, there was this, uh, a season of American Horrors Stories, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Asylum. Oh, it, it signed me up for any Ryan Murphy project. That was kind of the, that was kind of the Ryan Murphy is like, 
when he's at his best, he's so good. Then I feel like sometimes he kind of gets tired of a project and he starts like sabotaging it. Have you ever noticed that? Like with a uh, yes. talk where like he almost was like, he was intentionally trying to get out of there. <laughs> like there's some subconscious thing. He just made it like comically bad. And it was like yeah. still fun, but it was like weird. <laughs> How did you feel about what he did with um, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story? I thought it was excellent. I mean, I'm kind of a kind of a serial killer buff, you know, like you publish some Me of those. Me too, dude. Yeah, oh my God. Uh, I think he totally. did a pretty like fair, fair and honest sort of depiction. I mean, the whole, the Dahmer story is really a story of like, you know, like a white predator sort of preying on like underprivileged populations and sort of getting away with it just sheerly based on like institutional racism. Racism, Yeah. So, I mean, I think he did a really good job. I mean, I can see how, like, you know, the families, like, don't love to see. I mean, it's kind of like with, uh, I know a lot about, I, I, I've kind of done the research on um, John Wayne Gacy. And it was like a lot of the, when they were identifying those 35, 35 or so bodies they found, like a lot of the family wouldn't even provide DNA evidence because they didn't want their kids to be, you know, associated with like being killed in a, you know, kind of a gay murder thing. I mean, there's so much of that stuff going on with the stigmas and sort of the... Yeah. Yeah, Ryan Murphy's an interesting... And of course, Evan Peters, you just can't go wrong. With the the uh, although I, I've heard some critiques. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I devoured Monster and I liked it. And I thought Evan Murphy deserved like all the uh, acting awards because he really brought it. But it is kind of complicated so to cast a hot guy as a serial killer. I know that's. I agree with you that there's there's something really dangerous about like who's the guy from Greatest Showman, the younger one, um, who played Ted Bundy in that oh, movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ted Bundy was a really charismatic, you know, likable, you know, like almost. Uh, I mean, so that wasn't inaccurate the casting, but it's like when you're putting, you know, when you've got Christian Bale in a fat suit, you know, playing playing Dick Cheney, it's like you know, you, hot got, guys, it's Christian Bale, I'm hot sure. guys playing yeah, monsters, I mean, hot guys playing vile, despicable, you know, evil human beings. Like it is a really dangerous, you know, it's interesting thing to sort of in the public image and sort of our cultural understanding of these guys, you know, we're looking at like Leonardo DiCaprio playing, um, who's, uh, playing Jagger Hoover. Yeah. You know, kind of one of the most evil guys in the history of, I mean, interesting guy, complicated guy, you know, he probably had good intentions in some ways, but he just did a lot of pure evil stuff. And you got, you know, DiCaprio playing him, you know, so in the kind of the public image and the, the culture we're, we're imagining, you know, DiCaprio is the face of this like villainous, right. you know, evil force of, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a tricky one. Like, I don't know what, what you do. I mean, it's fodder. I kind of mentioned this before, but when I used to work in the film industry, um, on a film set, like you don't, people don't think about this, but anytime you show a, a uniform, anytime you mention, you know, the, the army, the Navy, blah, 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 like you have to sort of give like script approval or you have to like kind of like defer to the actual military themselves to sort of say this is okay to depict you know depict our people and our oh yeah so there's actually like that makes sense guys, there's guys on set yeah it makes sense I mean if we were a good country you know I mean it would you know you'd want to care about you know how we're depicted and stuff like it makes sense in theory but like it just leads to a lot of like really weird propagandistic sort of things being either added or cut from the language from the dialogue. And it's like, I understand why they're doing it, but it's like, I just don't know if the, the general public is aware of how much sort of oversight and sort of manipulation, like these things get like in like a Marvel movie or something where there's like literal CIA heroes, you know, fighting for <laughs> Wakanda or whatever. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I, I doubt they are at all. 
My next question is, what are you listening to these days? What's on your turntable? <laughs> you know, I've kind of been listening to a lot of, I mean, I was listening to jazz and blues and stuff, but cool. I've been listening to a lot of classical. You mentioned Sati earlier. Um, I really like Claude Debussy. I do too. He's one of my favorites. He's, he's just so smooth. When you're trying to read or write stuff, it's like lyrics can be a little bit, you know, distracting and stuff. So sometimes that good kind of classical stuff is just, but uh, jazz too. I'm a huge Sidney Bechet fan. Um, I've been kind of into Dizzy Gillespie lately. Nice. Um, I mean, you can't really go wrong. Um, Miles Davis is amazing. I mean, all that stuff is just so kind of, you know, enriches your, your soul and sort of just kind of charges your battery. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We've got a pretty, well, we, we've, we've got a pretty vast vinyl collection. Oh, I saw your picture of it. You were just sharing a picture the other day. It looked, looked amazing. Wow. what vi- It's so cool. You're spinning the actual vinyl too. I mean, the sound, yeah, you can't beat that analog sound. I don't think so. Yeah. We, we've got like maybe 2000 albums. Oh, I'm jealous. Not counting the so seven cool. inch singles and the Oh my God. Are there a lot of good punk in there? A lot of classics? Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well, my husband's also an industrial rock musician too. So Ooh, yeah. there's a full That's catalog cool. of that. Yeah. We're, we're, we're just a couple of rivet heads really at the end of That's the day. <laughs> so what are you watching these days? I know we talked about Ryan Murphy. I love that you're a Ryan yeah. Murphy head too. Oh yeah. Ryan Murphy. I mean, I really, when he's on fire and it's most of the time, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, Ryan Murphy. Um, lately, I've been watching a lot of K drama. A good friend of mine, she's also got a podcast. Um, her name is Elle Latham. Her podcast, it's very. I mean, she's the most knowledgeable person when it comes to like wild political stuff. Like, she's always getting like shut down, and I oh, mean, man. You know, like she's actively censored for kind of exposing stuff, and she's real angry. But uh, her her podcast is called um, uh, Super Awkward Fun Time with Elle Latham. And if anybody wants to like learn some like real deep dives into like you know, the weird dark world of politics. Like she's a great source of information, but, um, she was recommending some cake. What a great name. Super awkward, fun time. Yeah. yeah, It's super fun. It's a, it's a wild show. I mean, it's got, she's got some great episodes, but, um, there's a one show she recommended that I've been meaning to watch. It's a, uh, of course there's, there's not a dub. It's, it's only, you gotta watch the subtitles, but it's called, um, crash landing on you. It's kind of about like this sort of a Paris Hilton, kind of a crazy rich Asians kind of character. She just like, stumble bumbles her way there's like an accident she ends up in north korea and she's in like a and she falls in love with this like north korean like military sort of a kind of a general kind of guy or sort of a like a military guy and it's just kind of about the east and the west sort of meeting or the north and the south sort of meeting and i mean it's you know it's funded by by uh, south korea so it's going to kind of be a little bit capitalist slanted but it's still really interesting to sort of get a just kind of an eye you know a look into the Kind of the, I mean, North Korea is, an, it's an interesting place. And, you know, it's one of those deals where it's like, I'm sure there's plenty of bad stuff, but it's like when you look at Gaddafi and just kind of all the horror stories that they just kind of made up about him. And it was like, there was a lot of really good stuff Gaddafi was doing before they, you know, just kind of butchered him in cold blood. Yeah, yeah that's, that's so interesting. Oh, uh, another another good show um, uh, by Ava. I think it's by Ava DuVernay. It's that documentary. It's called Amend. Uh, A-M-E-N-D, Amend. Uh, it's kind of hosted by Will Smith. It's all about oh, the 14th Amendment. Really good. Yeah, Really interesting. I want to see that. I've, I've heard about that. And it they've kind of got, the episodes are sort of um, spaced out. So they've got like, um, like the, the final episode is about immigration and how that factors into the 14th Amendment. The episode before that is about um, 
GLBT rights and sort of marriage and stuff and how the, and I mean, the amendment sort of, it touches on uh, what is a women's liberation episode. I mean, it's just amazing. That sounds really, really cool. Super insistent. Meanwhile, my husband and I entertain ourselves lately. Well, we just finished um, From. Frog? From. F-R-O-M. From. Oh, what's that? I haven't heard of that. It's dark um, horror. Ooh. Horror um, bordering on sci-fi. It's this little town. People's vehicles break down when they're traveling from anywhere in the country and they end up in this place and they can't get out. And the place has what appears to be hungry, hungry zombies that come out at night and eviscerate people and they find ways to survive and to build a civilization and just a whole bunch of wild shit happens. And I do strongly recommend it. It's pretty Sounds amazing. Where, where can we watch it? From is on Amazon. The season one is on Amazon Prime. Oh, I have that. But you've seen what's happening with all the streaming services where they keep making you subscribe to more and more. So to I get. I know, it's maddening. It, it, yeah, it, it's infuriating. Season two, I think you have to subscribe to Paramount Plus. Uh, that drives you. I mean, I do that. I, I've done that. It, it's sort of, you almost have to be like, okay, this month, you know, right now we're watching Catherine the Great. So we're enrolled in Hulu and Hulu has a, you know, two month for five bucks special. And it was a five bucks special for a Disney add-on. This so is how we your, do it. Like know, we bought, maddening, but. we bought Showtime long enough to watch Yellow Jackets. Then we killed Showtime. And then to do the same thing. <laughs> uh, it's just like, and now we, we've killed Hulu, but now we need to reinvigorate Hulu because I want to see the bear second season. And it's just, yeah. It's, it's kind of confusing for the consumer. I mean, it's, it's better than, I mean, still like, you know, like I'm going to go see a movie in a couple of days with some friends of mine and it's like going to be like 20 bucks for a movie ticket. So it's like, I can get a whole month of, you know, watching HBO or stars for that price. So, I mean, it makes, it's still a good value, but it, you know, who, I mean, it's killing the theaters too. All this stuff kind of adds up. Yeah, I still try to go to a physical theater. I mean, now that it's safer to do so. And um, my favorite local theater still encourages masks. And it was really fun to go see Asteroid City, um, the new Wes Anderson. Oh, how was it? Was that amazing? It looked great. It is amazing. I strongly recommend what he does with the blown out Technicolor Oh, like the vintage, is, is it even technical? I think it's some older kind of color that he's um, envisioning. But yeah, and it, it also it's kind of um, a frame within a frame within a frame kind of storytelling. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, he's so he's so good. There really aren't I that many that. auteurs left. I mean, most of these auteurs have sort of either, I mean, some of them just gone to seed where like Tarantino, like, I mean, I still love the guy, but it's like he's done some things or like, Who's the, who's the guy that did Mother? Aronofsky is my favorite director. And now I just like hate the guy because of some of the things he did and some of the things he said. Yeah, uh, I know. Gross, right? Ugh. Yeah, that, that Mother movie was one of yeah, the few films I know. I we we both just of. kind of collectively pause and grimace. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the weirdest. There were two Wait, movies I walked one? out of. 
uh, Mother with Jennifer Lawrence. It's like a really frightening, evil movie that's sort of I like... I didn't even bother seeing it. It's garbage. It's, well, it's not even garbage. It's like it's like a Nazi movie about like like encouraging like population control and sort of a like racist framing. I mean, it's like really a frightening... If you understand, sort of, if you have... Ew. He's using sort of like, you know, these like less than subtle sort of metaphors, but it's like if you're, if you're tracking what he's what he's sort of pushing this sort of idea of eco-fascism and sort of a, that Malthusian sort of, you know, kill the poor, kill the sick. Like, I mean, it's really all, all this stuff about sort of, a, I mean, a lot, even Michael Moore sort of has been sort of guilty of that where like some of the way he frames environmental stuff is in sort of a, we need to control the developing countries' populations. And it's like, that is like literal Nazi eugenic talk. Like that right. is like scary stuff. Yeah. Uh, once things start overlapping into that philosophy, you've got problems. Uh, it's, it's pretty scary. I mean, hopefully, you know, the kind of the pandemic, sort of the the horrifying, devastating human toll is going to kind of quiet down some of that. But it's like, I mean, it's scary when these, you know, Trumps and Paul Ryan or, you know, these these sort of like, I mean, you know, even if they DeSantis, yeah, I mean, people that would like literally like the poor and the elderly to be dead, so they wouldn't have to pay Social Security. It's like, do you think they're going to be the ones who are going to do a good job of controlling the pandemic? I mean, these you know rallies and stuff. That I mean, it sort of helps them with their coffers. Like, it really doing a bad job of controlling contagion actually helps you know pay less Medicare. So it's like it's really scary when there's like a profit motive toward you know like kind of preventing the incentive for them to help keep people from getting sick. I mean, it's a really scary idea when you think about that. Yeah. You don't have to think long either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you're just kind of seeing it. I mean, it's, it's gotten better now. My, both my sister and my mom both work in healthcare and things have, you know, quieted down. There's not really, you know, COVID's almost gone here, you know, knock on wood. I mean, who knows, you know, they talk about like new, new strains and stuff, but during the payday, the heyday, I mean, the amount of, I used to live in a building full of a lot of seniors, and I was like, we were losing people like weekly. I mean, that must have been dropping. wow. It was sad. It was so sad. I mean, we lost a lot of a lot of family members, a lot of neighbors. I mean, I was a, uh, I was, I mean, it was it was kind of thirsty times. It was pretty depressing for for everybody. I mean, I'm glad we're kind of finally getting out of that. Yeah, me too. I'm going to move us in a different direction really quickly yeah, before yeah, we sure. wrap it's, up. We're, we're two hours. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. <laughs> That's okay. No, I love I love when this happens. Um, where can people find you and follow you on all your social media journals you're editing? Because you've got your hands in the editing side of things too yeah i'm kind of i'm kind of doing some fun stuff um you've been um, busy right now, twitter, yeah it's been a busy year um twitter twitter's kind of been my main i've got kind of the most connections i don't know why instagram i've never really succeeded at growing my account but um i've got a lot of a lot of great friends and mutuals on twitter like you're saying it's sort of the haiku community the short form community is just and just the writers and artist communities in general are just so amazing on twitter they Hopefully are. they don't destroy it. You know, they're, they're trying so hard to bring it down because it's such a valuable tool for sort of, you know, organizing, for agitating, for educating. Of course, they're going to disrupt it. But but right now, my uh, my handle is at Berglund Jerome on, on Twitter. And just throw me into Google. Um, if you do a Google image search of my name, Jerome Berglund, you'll see all kinds of different stuff and you can kind of find my... But uh, 
I've got a good, um, my Twitter has a link, but um, I've got a website with just a list of all the different publications that I've been doing. So if anybody wants to read anything, you can, there's lots of hyperlinks and stuff. Um, the small press I run, you know, real small. I mean, it's not, I haven't been, we've maybe released five books, but they're really interesting, great books by people who, you know, you definitely would enjoy the, I mean, really interesting stuff from all over the world. Um, from some really cool people. If you're, if you're following the haiku scene, um, Ajay Agyeba is a good friend of mine. He's an amazing, talented send you poet. And he's got a whole book on, um, it's a sequel actually all about farts. It's fart related send you and it sounds ridiculous, but they're actually like really kind of classy and sort of like thought provoking fart poems. But, uh, I love it's that. It's called Fury, Fury of My Fart. <laughs> That's one of them. But uh, we've got a bunch of neat stuff. Um, I love that. But, uh, nonprofit Press is the name of it. Nonprofit Press. Um, and then the Haiku Journal. It's called uh, Heterodox Haiku. Um, we just kind of have sporadic. It's just kind of small little calls and stuff. But we've been having some real fun. We've got about three issues now. And I don't know how long I can keep it going, but it's so much fun to kind of just showcase all these great, talented people I know, and they're just writing amazing poems they're sending. So it's so much fun to share them with the world. That's amazing. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been a blast. Yeah, I can't thank you both so much for, for doing this. This is so much fun. I hope everybody listening checks out other episodes. Um, the Joshua Michael Stewart one, especially, and the one with uh, Lauren Sharag are two favorite episodes, but you have so many great ones. I need to catch up on the other ones too. Get your hands on a copy of Funny Pages, people. It's a good book. And um, thanks again, Jerome. This has been a blast. We'll do it yeah, again. I had so much fun, Elizabeth. Sorry, sorry for rambling. <laughs> this is good. No, I'm, I'm glad. Send your great poems in, okay? I want to see you publishing. And yeah. Please share some of those uh, some of those awesome artworks, too. I think I've only seen a few, so please post them on the Twitter if you could. I will. I will. Thanks again, Jerome. Bye-bye. Wasn't that charming and lovely? Yeah. He's a delight. It's kind of a kind of a roller coaster rapid fire conversation. It's um, I well, I found it very, very much fun to to work on and listen to, so I hope you all did too. Before we get into our special treat for you, we do have a six-word story. I want to draw your attention to the sad fact that we have had some severe rain and flooding and the local farms were not spared there's been fields just completely submerged underwater including one of our um, favorite local farms Mountain View which does so much it drops food off at local food banks provides CSAs for people to get farm shares Anyway, look in our show notes. We're going to put their GoFundMe. And if you look for Mountain View Farm on Facebook, you can see it on that page too. But we urge you to give whatever you can because farmers yeah. don't anticipate the middle of the summer having their fields look like rice paddies. Yeah. They're, they're so underwater. A lot, of, a lot of local farms that, that could use your help. So if you know of any other farms that could use your help too, you can always just do that as well but i yeah. recommend you know definitely seeking out local farms and maybe Pie even in the sky yeah asking them what they you know if, do they need any help and what can you do well mountain view has a gofundme set up yeah. so we'll yeah. post that that's going to be in the show notes there's some rips a few weeks ago author cormac mccarthy died and a couple days ago he was followed by milan kundera who did live to be 94, so that's cool. Uh, author of uh, 
Unbearable Lightness of Being, among other wonderful books. And I um, prompted six-word story writers to maybe um, think about Milan Kundera. And Tom Kovar wittily writes, Milan Kundera, Czech or French? Czech. Yes, the, the, the homonym is the punchline there, just in case you can't picture the text in your head. <laughs> it's very clever. Very, very clever. It is very clever. And uh, once again, today we are sad to hear of the loss of Jane Birkin. Yeah. Collaborative with Serge Gansborg beautifully, mother of Charlotte Gansborg. Maybe mm-hmm. spin a Charlotte Gansborg record. Yeah, go to your favorite streaming service if you don't have something, you know, another way to listen to music and, uh, you know, don't own a record by Charlotte Gansborg, but uh, her stuff's really good. And listen to some Sash and Jane Bergen because they're excellent. Yeah, here's your musical recommendation for the day. All right, so we'll probably be back in a couple weeks. Hopefully, we definitely uh, will. With either Jeffrey Feingold or another luminary. Yeah. And then probably take our season break after that. Thanks again for sticking around for another episode of the Meat for Tea cast. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. Leave us a review. Tell your friends and family. Yes, please do. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea, the Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Sewn Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meatforteacast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meatforteacast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meat for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meat for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth, Meat for Tea on Instagram and on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>